So this is just to get you hungry this morning. Uh, how many of you guys are like me? You just, you love bread. Yeah, you love bread. So I wrote out all the types of bread just to get you thinking. White, wheat, rye, sourdough. There's something called pumpernickel. Is that true? Baguette, brioche, ciabatta, focaccia, all these fancy names, right? Pita, bagel, cornbread, English muffin, tortilla, chala, matzah, and Hawaiian sweet roll. <laughs> Nothing quite like bread. The worst thing about all these rage diets that are happening right now is they've made bread the number one enemy. It's just awful, right? It's the worst. <laughs> Quick story. When I was growing up uh, in the West San Fernando Valley, I'm really going to date myself here. Maybe somebody knows what I'm talking about. There was a, a fresh bread truck that would... Very good. Carol knows. Praise the Lord. It would roll up our street. It was called the Helms Bakery Truck, right? And it would roll up our street and deliver fresh bread. I even found a picture of one. And Wesley, go ahead. It's, it's now in a museum. It's, <laughs> it's that old. It's in a museum. Listen, when that truck rolled up the street, and it had a very distinctive whistle, every kid in the neighborhood jumped on their bikes and we would follow behind that truck and just wait for it to stop. And they would open the back doors of this truck and the aroma that came out of that truck, was it would just waft into the air and, and we would all just get so excited that the Helms guy was there. And, and inside the back of that truck were these polished wood uh, drawers, these, these drawers with glass on the front so you could look in and see the bread and they would pull those trays open. <gasps> the wonder. Man, I can still smell it to this day, right? So we would then, the Helms guy would stop and he'd be delivering bread to somebody in the neighborhood and the kids, we would all beg him for just a bite and if it was a good day and he was feeling good, he would give us a piece of bread or a donut or something and we would split that. And if you were really fast on your bike, you could snatch that, get on your bike and ride <laughs> and eat it for yourself. Man, it was a good, good marriage. I think that's probably where I got my obsession with bread. Still to this day, ask any one of my family, I, am, I eat more bread than anybody else in the family. Okay. So, bread today, I don't know if you know this, is the most widely consumed food in the world. Almost everywhere you go, it's considered an absolute staple, a basic dietary item that when co combined with water, you can live on it almost indefinitely. It's that valuable. In the ancient Near East, in biblical times, men and women basically lived on a diet that that really consisted of just a handful of things, bread, vegetables, fruit, olives, cheese, and, and fish. Herded animals were too valuable at that time to, for, for milk and for work, so they would rarely eat those except for special occasions and, of course, on feast days. But of all the things on the ancient menu, bread has the most meaning biblically. Consider these examples. Unleavened bread, of course, is at the heart of the, the Jewish Passover meal. And when the Hebrews were wandering in the desert for 40 years, God rained down manna, bread from heaven. Oh, that sounds good, right? Bread from heaven to sustain the entire nation of Israel. Later, an omer of that manna was actually placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And in terms of worship, we find 12 loaves of bread stacked, right, placed on a table of pure gold in the wilderness tabernacle and then later in the temple, known as the, the bread of the presence or the table of showbread. So if you do a word search in your Old Testament for bread, it shows up, get this, 218 times. It was an essential part 
of ancient Hebrew life. Now, fast forward to the New Testament, to the time of Christ, guess what? Very little has changed. We find bread at the center of the church's most important, most central ritual of remembrance. Take and eat, this is my body, Jesus said. Then we see the church in Acts 2 gathering regularly, making a habit of breaking bread together, and then going out and breaking bread from house to house as well. And of course, Paul then will later declare that the unity of our church, the unity of Christ's church is represented by, by bread. He says, since there is one loaf of bread, this is 1 Corinthians 10, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. So while you and I may go out today after church, we might grab a sandwich and think nothing of it, the concept of bread was no small thing in the time of Christ. So grab your Bibles. Let's look at this more carefully. Let's go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, look for verse 22. We're diving into what's known as the bread of life discourse. Okay, and this is set up by the two great miracles that we've looked at the past two Sundays. The bread of life discourse is 40 verses of dialogue, rich in challenging theology. Now, we're only going to dip our toe into it this morning. It's probably going to take us three or four Sundays to get all the way through it. But I want you to know up front that this conversation that we're going to go through over the next few Sundays was so difficult to hear in Jesus' day that by the end of this section, John is going to tell us this amazing truth that many of Jesus' disciples turned back and were no longer following him because of what we're going to study in this chapter. So we've got our work cut out for us today and over the next few weeks. All right, Wesley, hit the, hit the slide, next slide. I, I had to celebrate our new projection with a map. That had to happen. So as, right? Man, I, I dreamed that one day I would pastor a church that clapped for maps. You guys, man, my dreams, oof. All right, just as a, a background to give us some context, we'll note some of those towns as we go through this. Our text for this morning describes what happened the day after Jesus had fed some 20,000 people, right, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee near the town of Bethsaida, that yellow dot that you see up there, right? And remember, that was a mind-blowing miracle, right, that Jesus could create that much physical food out of nothing, creation ex nihilo, creating from nothing. And as evening fell, Jesus then did a few things. He dispersed the people, Remember, he ordered his disciples to get back in the boat and start rowing home, and then he went up on the mountain. He retreated up the mountain to have some quiet time with his father. Now, unfortunately, the disciples, this very simple journey that they were supposed to take across the lake became a Gilligan's Island type of boat ride. I'm dating myself again. Anybody else get that reference? Okay. A three-hour tour, right? that turned into a night of frustration and exhaustion until, of course, Jesus came to his friends. He had his eyes on them the whole time, Mark says, but he came to his friends and, 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 and met them on the lake, climbed aboard the boat, and then safely, like, like Moses leading the people through the Red Sea, brought them safely through the waters back home to the western edge of the shore to his home base in Capernaum, which is that red dot you see there on the map. So, Beginning in verse 22 now, look at your text, the story continues. Verse 22 says, The next day, after all this took place, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea, that's on the eastern shore where the miracle had taken place by Bethsaida, they saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not gotten into the boat with his disciples, 
but that his disciples had departed alone. Now, again, we cannot overestimate the excitement of the Galilean Jews at this moment in time. I mentioned it a couple Sundays ago. At this moment, Jesus has become a phenomenon in Galilee. He is incredibly popular. Many of the people had, had personally seen him teach, heard him teach. They had personally seen him perform miracles, and everybody else had heard something about him. So they're anxious now to get a glimpse of him and to be a part of all of the excitement of what was going on at the time. Remember, the Passover is near, right? They tell us the Passover is near. That means that Jewish nationalism is at its height, right? There is all kind of messianic expectations in the crowd. And the folks who witnessed that miracle, the fishes and the loaves, they had probably bedded down for the night. It is too late for them to go back home. They would have bedded down under the stars, basically slept outside. But in the morning, they awoke with great expectations. Imagine it. You'd seen this amazing miracle. You went to sleep, you woke up, and now you're excited. You wipe the sleepers out of your eyes, you grab your cup of coffee, and the first thing you think about is, where is that rabbi? And what is coming next, right? Are we going to get another miracle? Are we going to get more food? So they wipe the sleepers out of, their ear, out of their eyes, and they say, where is he? And he's nowhere to be found. Hey, did anybody see him get into another boat? Did anybody see him start walking around the lake back to Capernaum? They have no idea that very early in that morning, Matthew and Mark say that it was the fourth watch that Jesus did go out across the waters and meet his friends and then arrive safely with them in Capernaum. Look at verse 23. So other small boats came from Tiberias. Green dot on the map there, Tiberias. Near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. So they are crushed. They realize now that Jesus has somehow eluded them. So they all, as many as can fit, scramble onto these little boats and they're, they're off to Capernaum and everybody else who can't fit on the boat, they're now rushing around the lake hastily trying to get back to locate him. Verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, we're going to basically organize this message around four questions that the crowd asks of Jesus. Wesley, hit that next one. Here's the first one. Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, quick setting for this scene. If you allow your eyes to drop down real fast to verse 59, you're going to find out where this entire dialogue takes place. Okay? These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So the crowds are now streaming back to Capernaum. The ones who are on the boats get there first. The rest of them come up, you know, having walked, run, jogged, whatever it was, back to Capernaum. It's a long trip. And they find him where? In the synagogue. Now we have a photo of that synagogue. I know I've shown you this photo before so you can get sort of a, a lay of the land. If you've been to Israel, you've been to the synagogue of Capernaum. It's this white structure you see here in the bottom. It is amazing. Now, that is, a, that is a structure that remains from about 200 years past the time of Christ, but it's built on the foundation of the first century synagogue. You can see the foundation right under it. This is the very spot where Jesus would have gone. So you get a, a lay of the land and how close it was to the sea. So this is where, that is where it actually took place. Now, here's another very important historical note just to set the scene According to Matthew and Mark, by this time, members of the religious establishment from Jerusalem have shown up in Galilee. They're interested to find out what all the fuss is about 
with this miracle worker, they've come up, and it's likely as we study this now that they are a part of this crowd as well. That's going to make a difference. Now, how should Jesus respond to the question? When did you get here, Rabbi? Had Jesus wanted to really stir up the crowd and really frustrate those Pharisees, here's what he could have said. Well, it's interesting that you ask. As you know, there was no, no boat available to me, so I just used my divine power to walk across the waves to Capernaum. Can you imagine how, how things would have exploded, right? First of all, the Pharisees would have been up in arms, but the people there that already wanted to recruit him as their king, take him by force if necessary, would have been absolutely, they would have gone crazy. So Jesus never mentions that miracle of walking on the water. That is not for the crowds. That is not for public consumption. That is for his disciples. That is for us reading John's gospel thousands of years later, right? Modern day disciples. So let's look at how he actually responds. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, what does that mean? It means whatever he's about to say is very, very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, remember that's John's favorite word, but because you ate some of the loaves and you were filled. Notice Jesus doesn't answer their question. He doesn't tell them how he arrived or when he arrived in Capernaum. We've seen him do this before, right? He sets the agenda, not the crowds. So he's not going to try to explain how he got there or when he got there, right? He's not going to feed into their revolutionary thoughts and ideas. Instead, he takes this opportunity to talk about something which ought to be on the forefront of our hearts all the time. Motivation. Reason. What is it that motivates us to do the things that we do? Why are you seeking me? He asked. Why have you hustled with such enthusiasm to get back here to Capernaum just to find little old me? What's going on in your heart? It's not because you recognize the spiritual meaning behind what I've done, but you were simply thrilled that you got a free meal, that you got to see free miraculous food produced and you got to fill your bellies. You were excited because you see the miracles and you think how great it would be to have a king that can do this. Right? To have a king that can fill our stomachs and heal our illnesses. What you've done is you've fixated on the product, but not the person. The end result, not the one who performed the miracle. So you have missed the entire purpose of the sign. And I remember back in chapter 2, we, see, we saw something very similar to this, right? The crowds down in Jerusalem, they, were, they, were, they had sign faith. They were just looking for spectacles. But now we learn that it's not just Jerusalem. It's these Jews up in Galilee as well. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their hearts. So after exposing their wrong motivations, now he pivots to an imperative. And we see Jesus do this a lot. He, he rebukes them for wrong motive, and then he says, here's now what you ought to do. An imperative. For those of you who have ears to hear and hearts soft enough to receive that rebuke, here is how you should now change your thinking. He says in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes or spoils, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. Man, that's something we all need to hear today, right? In a world of chaos and confusion and busyness, this is a message that strikes the hearts of every person here, including me. Jesus wants these folks to turn away from their purely materialistic view of life. Just running around trying to meet the next physical want or the next material need that they have. Life is more than that. This is a chasing after the wind because everything that they're, they're searching for is destined to perish. 
These folks are no different than that Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. Remember, the woman who at first could only think about how this man who met this Jewish man who came to the well might supply her with an endless supply of natural water. And for what reason? So that she didn't have to keep schlepping up the hill back and forth to the water. She saw Jesus not as a savior, but as someone who could spare her all that hard work and make her life easier. In the same way, these Galilean Jews are looking for a miracle worker who will fill their stomachs with bread and simply make life more comfortable for them. And don't we all do this to some extent? As we know, even the best bread in the world only satisfies for a time. Then it perishes in our system and we're hungry again. But these folks are only thinking about their bodies, only about physical needs. And listen, human beings today, we're the exact same way. We are so short-sighted that all we can think about is, I've got this physical need. How can I meet it? I want this thing really bad. How can I make that happen? So it's a universal truth that every person that you come into contact with is going to be more drawn to material things than spiritual things. That shouldn't be said of us, but that's true of people, right? In fact, if you want to test this, you know, go to the mall like our impact team. Go to the mall, set up a table that says free money and see what kind of response you get. And after you've been mobbed, for free money, go the next day with a sign that says free spiritual advice and then compare the two results, right? We think materialistically, not spiritually. So in verse 27, Jesus provides the crowds with this obviously wise saying, stop pouring so much energy into running around and meeting your physical needs. Focus on things that will last for eternity. We all know that principle. How well do we live it out? Now, is he telling us to quit our jobs? Of course not, right? We know that scripture teaches the dignity of work. It teaches us that we've got to provide for our families. So we've got to do the one, the grind of life, the work and the putting the food on the table while, while doing the other, which is prioritizing spiritual things above those physical things. And friends, a lot of Christians have that reversed today. They have it reversed. For many Christians, their daily focus is on earthly things. That is their first love. Their first love is self-fulfillment in whatever they need, whatever they want, and then with whatever's left over, they can turn their attention to spiritual things. So we have this reversed. And I often meet Christians who, they have it reversed, and you can point that out, but they're like, but I don't understand why I'm struggling to grow spiritually. I don't understand why I'm not getting victory over sin. I don't understand why I'm not growing and loving people and a desire to serve the church. I don't know why my marriage is a mess. It's because you're more focused on the physical than the spiritual. So if this describes you, have ears to hear Jesus this morning. Consider the priorities of your life. What is it that gets you up in the morning, gets you excited? Physical things or spiritual things? What drives you throughout the day? What's constantly on your mind? Are you just running to and fro, always busy, busy, busy with earthly matters, consuming all types of food that is destined only to perish? Or are you abiding in the vine of Christ and prioritizing things through a biblical lens now if you're one of those folks who says all right jeff that's fine well tell me specifically then what i'm supposed to do what is this food that endures to eternal life i'm gonna let jc ryle answer that question he's much smarter than i wesley hit this great quote he says this how are we to labor christians there's but one answer we must labor in the use of all appointed means we must read our bibles like men digging for hidden treasure we must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with a deadly enemy for life. 
We must take our whole heart to the house of God and worship and hear like those who listen to the reading of a benefactor's will. We must fight daily against sin, the world, and the devil, and we must conquer or become slaves. This is laboring unto eternal life. Now, don't hear that as just a list of things to do. Because we're going to find out in the next couple of verses that doing really isn't the point. What Ryle is describing there is just a few key things that should naturally flow out of the heart of somebody who has a passion for Christ. Hold that thought and we'll come back to it. Let's keep going in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts, for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Right? For on Him, the Father, God, has set His Seal. So when it comes to this particular food, the type that endures for eternity, there's only one source for it. That's what he's saying, one source. The son, of the son of man is the one who gives it because he's sovereign over it. This is so important. He's sovereign over it. He dispenses it according to his good pleasure. Why? Because he is God. He is the one who dispenses it. And we know that he's, that he's God because Yahweh himself, the Father, has certified that that is true. The Father has put his seal of approval on the Son, which authenticates his identity as God the Son and has authorized him to be the one source of the provision of this food that lasts and endures into eternity. What a statement, right? Again, imagine the crowds hearing Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth, making that claim. Okay, second question from the crowd, Wesley. There it is. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what are we to do? so that we may accomplish or perform the works of God. Now, did you catch that? That's why I just said to you, don't look at Ryle's list and say, oh, here's just a list of to-dos, because that's exactly what the crowds in Capernaum wanted from Jesus. That's the way we tend to look at things, but that's exactly what Jesus is about to rebuke them for. Rabbi, tell us what you want us to do. We want your miraculous bread. We want you to be our king. So just tell us, what does God require of us? And then we'll do it. That's basically what they're saying here. This is, again, their materialistic view of religion. Not only has this materialism affected their interpretation of the miracles, it's also poisoned their whole view of salvation. And this is, again, true today. If, if there's anything that's true about the history of human religion, it's that people always want to do things to be saved. Give me the list, man. Give me check boxes that I can check off. I want a formula. If you just give me a formula, I'll go out there and do it. What that does is it gives people the illusion that they can control their own destiny. That they deceive themselves into thinking, if I just have a, a list, then I can control my eternal future. But it's naive thinking, isn't it? Men and women always overestimate their goodness and their ability to do what God requires. Because newsflash, God had given these very same Jews his law, and exactly zero of them had been able to keep it. But this is how blind they are in this moment. Just tell us what to do, they say. So Jesus sets them straight in verse 29. He, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. Now catch that, they had asked about the works, plural, and, and Jesus responds with a singular work. The only one that matters, and here it is, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That is the work of God. So what God requires is not to do, but to trust. 
Not to gather a list of good works and start checking them off, but to believe in this one very specific person, the one whom Yahweh has sent into the world as Messiah, as Redeemer, as Savior. That's it. And all God's people said, oh, come on, that's too simple. (laughs) How many times have you heard people say that? That's just too simple. And so what do we do? We want to pile more stuff on. So you'll hear priests say, well, yeah, that's, that's required, but then there's all these rites and all these ceremonies as well. And you'll hear intellectuals come in and say, well, that's faith is good, but make sure that you're studying these things and you're taking that class and you're learning this system. And then you'll hear moralists pile on and say, faith is good, but make sure you do this and don't do that. But Jesus, the one who counts, says this, here's the single work required by my Father to believe in me. And of course, that's what the Apostle Paul then is going to echo throughout his his life throughout his writings that we are justified by faith alone in God's Son apart from the works of law. Calvin explained it this way, Wesley. What? How about Wesley, huh? (laughs) People listening to this audio are going to go, what is going on? Who is this Wesley? (laughs) Calvin says this, now faith brings nothing to God. On the contrary, it places man before God as empty and poor, that he may be filled with Christ and with his grace. It is therefore a passive work, that's key, a passive work to which no reward can be paid, and it bestows on man no other righteousness than that which he receives from Christ. Now, even some people balk at what Calvin says there, that there's a work involved at all in this idea of faith, even a passive work. They they get the sense that there's something human being added here, But that is the very word that Jesus himself uses in verse 29, right? He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he sent. So is believing a work? Is believing a work? To the extent that a person responds to what God is doing in his or her heart, yes, it's a work. It's the work, Jesus says. It's the only work that matters, Jesus says. So just to clarify, salvation is a gift from God entirely by his grace, That's what scripture teaches, that's what we believe, that's what we preach. Saving faith itself is a gift from God. It's not something that a person can wake up one day and self-generate, like, oh, I'm gonna put faith in God today. Why? Because we're blinded by by our, our, our our minds that can't understand and our darkened hearts. It only comes through the new birth by the Holy Spirit. So God brings the dead to life and he gives a man or a woman a new heart with new affections. That's the key. God is the one who does that work. He gives you a new heart that now has a new affections for things. And he takes the blinders off and suddenly we understand. That's the testimony of many in this room, right? God is the one who does all those things, but the sinner still has to respond. He or she has to repent and believe. And those are two sides of the same work as Jesus defines it, turning from sin and turning to the Savior, repentance and faith. Spurgeon puts it this way. Nice, Wesley, fantastic. Spurgeon says this, faith in Christ is simply and truly described as coming to him. It is not an acrobatic feat. I love that. It's simply a coming to Christ. A child comes to his mother, a blind man comes to his home, even an animal comes to his master. Coming is a very simple action indeed. It seems to have only two things about it. One is to come away from something and the other is to come to something. Very simple explanation. 
Now that is the single work required by God, and that work alone will save a man or a woman, but we should never forget that that saving faith changes everything in our lives. Sometimes we stop at that. I know believers that say, well, look, I, I made that decision years ago, and I went about my life. Really? Doesn't saving faith change everything about our lives? In coming to him, we progressively grow in our trust in his goodness. We grow in our love for him. We grow in our following him and our obeying him. Saving faith unites our hearts and all of our lives with his. It redirects our plans and our purposes. It alters the things that we seek. It redefines our hopes and our dreams. Saving faith is not a peripheral thing. That's so important. Sometimes we, sometimes we think that it, it can be that. It's, it's here's my box of physical life and here's, here's my life of saving faith. And as if we can jump in and out of the boxes. It's not a peripheral thing. If you possess saving faith, it controls you. It must mean that you're prepared to die to yourself and to take up a cross for Christ's glory, for his sake, right? It means that we owe him an immeasurable debt of love for which we have no currency to repay except this, our very lives. To devote our very lives to him and to his work. That's all we have. Friends, believe in the one whom God has sent. Trust him for salvation alone. That is the singular work which you must do, but don't stop there. Please don't stop there. Commit yourself today to lay aside all the distractions of the physical earthly world and prioritize the things that will endure into eternity. Okay, let's look at verse 30. Third question. Very good. Third question. Verse 30. So they said to him, what then are you doing as a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work are you performing? Now, does that cause you any pause? Do you stop and go, well, hold on a second. The day before, you saw this guy Take two fish and five loaves and feed 20,000 people. That's not enough. They want more. They want more. Can you believe that? Now, some scholars look at this and they see sort of a nefarious shadow lurking behind this question that because the scribes and Pharisees have come from Jerusalem, that they once again need to challenge the rabbi. Because remember, the the religious establishment didn't see that miracle at Bethsaida, right? So, so now the important guys have come, and they're like, so, can he do it again? If so, we want to see it. And, of course, everybody else is like, yeah, do it again, do it again, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, do it for these guys. Well, they, they want a free meal again, too, right? The meal was pretty cool. So in either case, what they're trying to do is manipulate Jesus into performing for them like a trained seal, He's not going to have it, right? Is it any wonder that very soon after this, Jesus is going to look at the scribes and Pharisees dead in the eye and say, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, and none will be given it except what? The sign of Jonah. And then he, he let them scurry off to try to figure that out, didn't he? By the way, did you catch the lie there in verse 30? If you'll only do another sign, then we'll see and believe you. If you just do one more thing, then... We'll trust in you. Listen, folks, again, this is true today. People who have no intention of ever submitting to God will often stand before a professing Christian like you or me, and they will demand more evidence. Just give me more evidence, right? It's a never-ending game for some people. They have no intention of ever trusting in Jesus. 
But know this, while it's helpful to have good arguments for Jesus and for the Bible, it is never a lack of evidence that keeps people from trusting in Christ. That's never it. It's their selfish, darkened hearts. And no amount of evidence or rational argument is going to change that. That is a work that only God can do. Again, that's not an excuse not to have good arguments for why you believe what you believe, but just know ultimately that's the thing that holds people back. They can clamor for more evidence. They need a new heart. Amen? Now look what the crowd tries to do in verse 31. They quote scripture at Jesus. Hmm. They say, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Does that not make you laugh? These Jews quoted the Torah to Jesus, to God, the author of it. Wow. But the logic that they're trying to use here makes some sense. They think if Jesus is the prophet promised by Moses, we saw that last time, then he ought to be able to keep doing greater and greater miracles. After all, listen, Jesus did feed a large crowd, but Moses fed the whole nation of Israel. Jesus did that just one time. Moses did it for 40 years. So what do you got now? So what are you going to (laughs) do? Right? Jesus just gave ordinary barley bread. Moses, bread from heaven. I mean, they're they're making this comparison, right? So Jesus once again has to set them straight. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, listen carefully, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So yeah, the manna was indeed a miracle, but it didn't come from Moses. It came from God. How many times do we do this as human beings? We, We look at human leadership and we go, wow, look at that. And we completely miss the God who equipped that person to lead. We do it all the time. And so do the, so do the Jews back in this day. We attribute great things to human leaders and completely forget that it's God that does all the equipping. Exodus 16, 4 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven. Yahweh said that. I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day so that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. This gets repeated, Psalm 78. He commanded, God commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He, Yahweh, rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Psalm 105, they asked, and he, Yahweh, brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. So who gave the bread? God did. Moses' role was actually pretty minimal. Hey, this is what God says is going to happen. This is how we gather it. Nice job, Moses. (laughs) Anyone in this room could have done that, right? So you can almost hear Jesus saying, guys, stop trusting in Moses. As great as he is, look to God alone and look to the one whom he sent. Here's the other thing. The manna given to the Israelites in the wilderness back then, it was miraculous. It was bread. That's true. But like any bread, any physical bread, it brought only temporary satisfaction. They got hungry again. And most of the Jews in that generation fell in the wilderness and died in unbelief. So the manna in the days of Moses was only a shadow of something far greater to come. It was a prototype of what Jesus calls in verse 32 the true bread the true bread that comes from heaven. And he explains then in verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and does what? Gives life to the world. That's a key transition verse because it's gonna explain the great declaration that Jesus makes next. Notice how that true bread, it's far greater than the manna, right? The manna was given to who? Only the Israelites. 
But this bread, this true bread that's coming from heaven, is given to what? The entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. It comes from heaven, and wherever it goes, it brings life. That's way better than the manna, right? So last question, and this one's really more of a request. I don't even have to say Wesley. He's just on it. Last qu- this is really more of a request. Verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, by the way, that's the Greek word kurios. It's, it really shouldn't be translated Lord because they don't see him as Lord. It's a term of respect. It should be translated sir. They said to him, sir, always give us this bread. And again, we hear in this the Samaritan woman at the well who said something very similar. Give me the water that you claim to have so that I won't be thirsty again. And now the people in the crowd are saying, yeah, 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 this bread, give it to us all the time. Give it to us constantly. They're not getting it, are they? They're not getting it. They still think Jesus is offering them some kind of physical bread just like Moses so they can fill their stomachs. And now Jesus has to correct them one final time Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Wow, what a moment that must have been. Can you imagine being a fly in the wall in that moment? Excuse me, what do you say? <laughs> what we were just talking about literal bread and Moses and all that stuff. What did he, did he, did he just say, I'm the bread? <laughs> I mean, we would all be stunned by this statement, right? What a moment. But that's the lesson for the crowd, clear as can be. You want, true heaven, you want true bread from heaven, from the very hand of God, you're looking at it. Mic drop. Wow. And he goes on, the one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. So just as God did 1,500 years earlier during the Exodus, now he has sent to his people bread from heaven exactly what they need only this time it's a type of bread that will sustain life not until the next day but it's given one time for all eternity again we're not talking about temporary physical sustenance we're talking about spiritual nourishment that lasts forever now by this time jesus has already done the sermon on the mount but this is what he said he said blessed by god are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness hunger and thirst Hunger and thirst. For what should we hunger and thirst? For righteousness. For they shall be what? Satisfied. Satisfied. Jesus offers what Moses never could. A right standing before a perfectly holy God. There's a big difference between Moses and Jesus, right? That's what he's trying to break through to these people with. But they're so blind. Now, notice the words come and believe there in that statement in verse 34. Finally, we see Jesus giving a very clear invitation. Come to me. Believe in me. I am the bread. I am the one whom Yahweh sent. I'm the one who provides food unto eternity. In fact, I am that food. And I use that that phraseology, I am, on purpose. This is the first in a a line of distinctive I am sayings in John's gospel. There it is. I am the bread of life. And the Greek construction here is designed to place an emphasis on the subject, the I, in that saying. In fact, Greek scholars often point out that the best translation of this goes like this. I, I myself, am. I am. It's the exact same construction that you'll find in the Septuagint version of Exodus 3.14. We all know this verse. It's where God declares to Moses from the burning bush His absolutely unique covenant name. I am who I am. It's the exact same construction. 
It's the loftiest of all names. It speaks of a divine self-existence, something that only God can claim. And as Jesus says that, I am the bread of life. No first century Jew would have missed what he's trying to say here. He is equating himself with Yahweh. That is a stunning thing. And yet, verse 36, brings this first part of the discourse to a very sad ending, doesn't it? Jesus says, but I said to you that you have indeed seen me, and yet you do not believe. Wow. Once again, Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of those in the audience, right? He's already told them everything that they need to know about who he is. He's already validated that identity through his teaching, through the miracles, but shockingly to the reader, because we read, we read back into history, we're like, hindsight, right? We, how did you miss this, right? Shockingly, none of it brings these Galilean Jews to a place of saving faith. Seeing, they didn't see. And hearing, they didn't hear. And so they persist in their unbelief. Now, the reason they continue to to persist in that unbelief, the reason for it is not a popular teaching. But it's true. And that's what Jesus is about to lay out in the next set of verses. The next 20 or so verses of this chapter were tough to hear back in the first century, and for many today, they're still really, really hard to accept. Are you skeptical that Jesus is the true bread of life that came down from heaven from God? Are you skeptical of that? Does it offend your senses to learn that the only people who have the ability to come to Jesus and be saved are the ones whom the Father draws? Does that offend you? Are you scandalized by the fact that you must feed upon Jesus' flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life? That's for next time. Teaser. Those are tough, aren't they? Again, tough in the first century, tough today. Tough as we're sharing the gospel to speak truth about how exactly people are saved. But folks, something that we've got to look at carefully for the glory of God. That's for next time. For now, let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word the way it challenges us, the way it speaks to our hearts, Lord, for your spirit that takes the word and just massages our hearts and our minds and gets us thinking about spiritual things, Lord. As as we hear your word, God, continue to push those earthly, materialistic things to the side and bring all those spiritual, beautiful things to the forefront of our minds and our lives. Let us prioritize those things, Lord. God, we know that, that, that sanctification is a cooperative work. We know that you always want to see us grow. You always want to see us living for the things of eternity. So I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters today, Lord, that you would challenge us in those areas where we are purely physical and we've completely missed the signs that you have given us. Father, thank you for the beginning of this great discourse. I pray that you go ahead of us over the next couple of weeks. Challenge our hearts on difficult theology. May you be glorified in all of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.